Hello, and welcome to Northeast Christian Church's online service. We are so excited to have you here with us. Be sure to subscribe to NECC on all social media platforms. And to listen to our messages again, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the service. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're uh, interested in joining the Paul Bunyan small group, you can contact me at any point. Glad to set you up with that. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good. That was pretty weak, but I'll take it. Glad to be with you again today. If you don't know me, my name is Pastor Dylan. I'm very honored to be able to preach for the third week in a row. Um, yeah. No. You know, Pastor Paul really, he, he does trust me and I'm really honored by that. You have a rare pastor. He's not the type to hog the pulpit, but he shares it. I'm grateful for that. You should be grateful for that. He's developing pastors. He's not trying to be the only one. That's rare. That's rare. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to be continuing our teaching series in the Gospel of Luke, but before we do that, I'd like to draw your attention back to our marriage workshop that's happening at the end of this week. Married for Life, as we said, is this Saturday. It's put on by marriage coaches Tony and Susan Paolo. And like they said, I mean, I'm not married, but I hope I'm always the type who, when I am married, I never stop investing in my marriage. I heard a very wise woman while I was in Bible college. She was about 60 years old, and she delivered a sermon and said, marriage is like a box. You only get out of it what you put into it. And so I hope that you're the type of person who, I don't care how good your marriage is, that you want to put more in the box. And so if, if you want to do that, go to our website, any-cc.org, and sign up. And I don't think you're going to regret that whatsoever. We'll also help us get a headcount for snacks, appetizers, that kind of thing. So please hit the register button at the bottom of our home screen, and thank you in advance for doing that. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. And this may be Jesus' most famous address, perhaps with the exception of John 3.16. It's uh, called the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be heading through the next few weeks after Pastor Paul speaks. You'll also find this sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. And you may notice that if you read it there, it's quite a bit longer and sounds a little bit different. And this can rock some people's faith. Critics of the Bible will sometimes point to the differences in the Gospels and say, look, see, we told you. It's full of contradictions and falsehoods. And there's a whole field of biblical studies called synoptic studies devoted to this. But I want to simplify, simplify that for you here this morning. I can say to you that as a pastor who sometimes has to preach in different locations and contexts, that I have what I call back pocket sermons. Okay, somebody asked me to preach in a third world country one time with a two-hour notice, and I had to have one of those back pocket sermons. They're sermons that I can pull out in short notice, and they're distilled down to the basic things that I want to get across. And Jesus likely preached the same thing more than once because he's a traveling preacher. So it stands to reason that there might be slight variations in his recorded sermons because not Everyone writing the Bible is making stuff up or lying. It's just that the authors are probably recounting different times where he's delivering the same sermon. 
If you've been listening to me long enough, you know sometimes I tell the same stories in my sermons, okay? I'm already an old man in that way. I forget what I say. But there's slight variations, but the truth is there. And the same would be true of Jesus. The Bible is distinctly reliable, and its writers are telling the story of Christ's life from different vantage points, which makes them complementary, not contradictory. Okay. If you'd like to more learn about biblical reliability, feel free to give us a listen on Apple Podcasts or, or Spotify, Northeast Christian Church. Give Pastor Paul's sermon a listen titled The Bible. It's just titled The Bible. It was preached on November 21st of last year, and you can get a little more info if you're interested in that. I'd also encourage you to sign up for my Alpha group, which will be starting shortly after Easter. I've gotten a little more room because I think I have some more people to lead it. So if you're interested in questions like that and more common questions surrounding the Bible and faith, and you want to start to go a little deeper, please shoot me an email, dylan at lowellag.org. There's limited space for that, but we'd welcome you. Today... We arrive at Luke's recording of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus delivers his sermon a little differently than we've heard it before. Not only does he announce who is blessed, but he announces who is cursed. And in his usual fashion, Jesus flips our values on their head. And I think he gives us a clear description of what a truly valuable life looks like. It's easy for us to assign an overestimated value to things that are essentially worthless. And in equal measure, it's easy for us to devalue the real treasures in life. The beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, traditionally called the Beatitudes, helps us to rightly interpret our experiences the way that God does. Many of us seek to become scholars at interpreting the Bible, and we're simultaneously illiterate when it comes to interpreting our own lives. I find it's equally important to have the proper equipment to make sense of my own life as it is to make sense of the scriptures. Jesus gives us the proper lens, the proper glasses to view our life experiences the way that we should. The main thing we should be taking from the scripture today is this. Don't decide quickly what's a blessing and what's a curse. Don't decide quickly what's a blessing and what's a curse. Let's take a moment. We're going to read the scriptures together in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. You can follow along in your own Bible. You can listen to me if you'd like, if you didn't bring your own Bible. Uh, I read from the English Standard Version because I'm preaching and it's my favorite. And I can do that. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. Here we go. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so did their fathers, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you. Who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are hungry now, for you shall be, or full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is God's word. Lord, today we come to you and we ask that you would just open our hearts to receive your word. Through your worship, you've done it. Through 
every experience so far. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what only your Spirit can do. You say no one can come to you unless the Spirit of God draws them. So I pray that today you would draw in our hearts, whether we're not a Christian or whether we've been a Christian for 50 years, I pray the Spirit of God would draw everyone in the sound of my voice to the Lord Jesus and that every person would find everlasting true life in his name. Amen. One of the first things I remember reading from the Bible was the Sermon on the Mount. My high school handed out these little baccalaureate New Testaments, uh, and well before I ever became a Christian, I don't know if you would do this, my mother made me late for everything in my entire life, so I have this compulsion to be early, and when I started to read the Bible, I would arrive at my work a half hour early so I could sit outside and read the New Testament because it brought me some, some sense of peace I couldn't explain. It calmed the anxiety that was going on within me. Those were intimate moments with God before I even knew what that was. I sensed the stirring of God's Spirit in this sermon, and I couldn't explain it yet. I wasn't a Christian, but I felt like I was overhearing a conversation that I needed. These teachings are directed by Jesus toward his disciples, not to the whole crowds, but he speaks in a way that anyone listening can understand. And that's what we hope to do as a church, because we believe it's the way God conducts himself, that you and I know how we ought to speak. And you can see Jesus in the beginning of verse 20 to his disciples. He's, not, he's just got done healing the crowds, but now he's talking exclusively to those he calls disciples. Our lives ought to mirror that. We ought to focus on the family of God. The scriptures say, do good to everyone, but especially those who are of the household of faith. And yet, we should always be aware that what we say may be overheard by those outside the family. So speak in a way that you know you're going to be overheard. If people could overhear your conversations, your words, your teachings, would they be magnetized or repelled by what you have to say? Jesus is aware that centuries of people would be listening into this conversation. So although he's teaching his disciples, he's speaking out of the side of his mouth to everybody who would be listening to him in the future. And that includes you and I. Jesus does two things at the beginning of this, of this sermon. He describes who a blessed person is, and he describes who a cursed person is. And in typical form, our Lord is the king of paradox. He exposes our, our assumptions by flipping them on their head. Each of his statements is a mirrored blessing and curse. So we're going to talk about each one. There's four themes, each with a blessing and curse. And we're going to jump into the first one, four themes. And he says the first in verses 20 and 24. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In order to understand this, we have to pan out and be a little circumspect. If you look at the whole Bible, you see plenty of wealthy, godly people. Abraham, Boaz, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, and the list goes on and on. These people were well off. God blessed them and praised them for their faithfulness. It's important to establish what Jesus does not mean from the gate. But that being said, 
we have to take into serious account that most of God's people historically and biblically were not wealthy people. They were mostly poor or from the mercantile class or what we would call the middle class today. Here's the bottom line of all of this. The measure of faithfulness is this. Where are you storing up your riches, no matter how little or much you have? Where are you storing up your wealth? Jesus touches on this in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. When wealth is acquired here and now, it's our responsibility to use it, not hoard it. And that is really hard. Later in Luke 12, Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool who instead of being generous, he builds bigger barns to store up all of his wealth. And God responds to him and says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have stored up, who do they belong to now? The book of Ecclesiastes is probably my second favorite book in the Old Testament. And if I'm really, really depressed, it becomes my favorite book. Okay, it's a really good book to read when you're sad. In chapter 4, it says this, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of work and a striving after the wind. The Bible stands in contrast to our capitalist society, which says that more comfort, more possessions, greater security, and more work equal blessing. Jesus says, what a curse that is, because you're not investing, you're collecting. This was not a popular message then, and it's not a popular one now. We love to have our cake and eat it too. Just just look at the blessed hashtag on any social media platform, and I'm sure that the images and videos that you see do not align with what Christ calls blessed here. When we think of blessing, we think of money, good jobs, security, and possessions. But don't be so quick to decide what's a blessing and what's a curse, because you may end up chasing the wind your whole life. This is a sin called covetousness, and it's one of the big ten in the Ten Commandments. You want it, and you can't get it. So you chase, and you chase, and you chase, and you work, and you work. And one day you wake up and realize you've been trying to grab a vapor, and it's absolutely nothing. When you and I have to give an account for the life that we've lived, God will call into account what you've done with your wealth. I'm not just talking about money. That is merely one aspect of wealth. But what have you done with your family, your security, your home, your legacy? All of those are telling indicators of wealth just as much as finances. I read a study this week that linked intact parental structures to higher income later in life. A stable home, stable housing, and intact legacy can set you up for tremendous success. And if you have those things, you have the responsibility to ask God, Lord, what do you want me to do with them? How can I be of service to others with them? Because you may be looking for the second house, the third car, or the dream vacation when God is telling you to help someone get their first house, their only car. And he's, he wants you to move people from poverty to security instead of moving your family from beach to beach to beach. 
And this is echoed in Jesus' second parallel blessing and curse when he said, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. But woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. It's linked to the first one. The objective, the goal of a blessed person is not aimed at self-satisfaction or self-feeding. It's aimed at satisfying and fulfilling the needs of others who can't. If we hunger in some way, we are blessed because it means we gave something up. We experienced what Jesus does on the cross, a sacrifice with a willing spirit. That is blessed. But it's a rare person who handles wealth in a godly way. And that's why our Lord says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm not telling you all to become monks dressed in rags and move to the Mojave Desert, but I would invite you to ask, where are you investing your wealth? Is it in people? Or are, and are you making a difference? Or are you simply making a dollar? Are you inviting people in your home to show them a better way and give them some sense of security? Or are you excluding them from your home out of a sense of fear or even worse, a sense of mere convenience? Are you a channel for God's blessing? Does it flow through you? Or are you simply a swamp for your own gratification? Are you criticizing the poor from the comfort of your own home, well-fed and warm, rather than reaching out to them? What we assign the label blessing can easily become a curse around our necks if we're not discerning. I always want to be the type of person who says, God, what do you want me to do with what I have and how can I do it better? Please forgive me for not maximizing what you've given me and help me to do it better. You don't need to become impoverished in order to be blessed. You don't have to stay poor in order to be blessed, but you do need a different mindset on what you're doing with your wealth and what your bank account says you're pursuing. Wealth becomes a blessing or a curse simply by how it's used, not how much you have of it. How are you using it? And if you're using it wrongly, it's okay. Pick yourself up. Ask God, please help me. Please direct me. Show me how I can give maybe just a little bit more of myself to you. Show me where I can help somebody. Open my eyes to the people around me. That's called repentance, and he'll honor that. And that is what God is looking for in both the rich and the poor. Don't decide quickly what's a blessing and what's a curse. Next, Jesus has another parallel blessing and curse in the sermon. He says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Sorrow is something that you and I seek to avoid at all costs. And yet, I've seen some of the best things come into my life through difficult seasons. However, my instincts to avoid sorrow remain the same. Ecclesiastes, which I mentioned earlier, tells us in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, it is better to go to the house of mourning than it is to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness of face makes the heart glad. Jesus is describing Another feature of what it means to be blessed. 
It means embracing sorrow and hardship as the path to life, not an obstacle on the path. He modeled this by embracing crucifixion as the way to redemption for all mankind. And the scriptures later say, if you suffer with him, you will be resurrected with him. When you face hardship in life, rejoice, because that is the tool that God uses to shape you into the person that you should be. When I became a Christian, I was sobbing my eyes out. I was, uh, I was driving down the road repeating the phrase, Lord, I repent, over and over and over again at 60 miles an hour. It, it's a miracle I'm not dead. I could barely see anything. It's a miracle nobody else is dead. And I, I was cruising and crying, and I gave my life to the Lord. And the next couple of months of my life, all I did was cry. Have you ever felt that way when you first come to the Lord? Like, I, I cried over my sin. I cried over how hard life was. I cried for my family. I cried over what I felt the Lord was asking me to sacrifice. I was just weeping all the time. In particular, I had a two-year relationship that I felt the Lord was asking me to walk away from. It wasn't healthy for me or for her. And I knew deep in my heart that I, it was time to end it. And I, w- I wept and I was, I was sad over that. I was grieved and torn. And God calls that a blessed state. In the book of Revelations, we get a picture of this woman. It's a symbolic picture who she wipes her face after she commits adultery, wipes the dirt off of it and says, I've done nothing wrong. And Jesus looks at a spirit like that and says, you are cursed. If you can't weep, you haven't discovered the way that God's Spirit deconstructs and reconstructs a believer's life. And I ended things with her after wrestling for eight months straight. It wasn't easy, and I wept a whole lot more after that. It was difficult. Some of you may be in a place where you're weeping over the need to walk away from something that God wants you to. And allow me to speak pastorally just for a moment here. It's time to walk away. It will be more painful if you hang on longer or if you deny those promptings from God's Spirit. You will weep later if you refuse to weep now. Others among you need to keep going. If you give up, you're going to pay that price you dread later. I think we need to face the difficulties that God places in front of us rather than denying them. That is the path to peace. The scriptures say that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy will come in the morning. That's Psalm 30. And when you're weeping, be comforted. Sadness of face brings joy to the heart the writer of Ecclesiastes says. I mentioned her a few weeks ago, but she's worth mentioning again. An author and professor at the University of Houston, uh, Dr. Brene Brown, talks about the importance of moving through an emotion, not, not denying it or getting stuck in it. And she tells us to picture a tunnel. You can't go around the tunnel. You can't avoid the tunnel. The tunnel is coming at you. There's nothing you can do about it. That's what emotions are like. The problem comes when we fail to move through it or we try to distract ourselves with superficiality instead. You will do yourself not only emotional damage, but spiritual damage by neglecting the important exercise of weeping. I'm not a big crier. Listen, I, I, I don't cry a whole lot. But more and more, I've been trying to sit with my emotions instead of trying to avoid them. 
I think sometimes as people, we think it's admirable to buck up, pull yourself together, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move on. All that teaches you is survival. It does you no good. I've done myself much harm by refusing to deal with the tough things right in front of me. And instead, I use humor as a deflection technique. Do I have any people that can tell the truth? Anybody else tell a joke instead of dealing with what's right in front of you? Okay, we have some honest people here today. Here's a simple truth for you. If you refuse to grieve now, eventually you'll be forced to. You cannot laugh away sorrow. You must experience it and allow God to heal what is broken inside of you. The only way that happens is acknowledging what's broken, grieving it, grieving your part in it if you have any, grieving the evil that's been done to you, grieving what's lost, because that is the only way a crack can form large enough for God's Spirit to enter in. And if you insulate yourself with laughter, you'll continue to decay on the inside. But if you move through your pain, you'll find rejoicing and peace on the other side of it. I encourage you to take a season before Easter and stop distracting yourself with social media, with shopping, with games, with movies, with music, with TV, and sit with yourself for more than five minutes so that you can actually feel what you need to feel and say what you need to say to God, and you'll discover that that's the place that God starts to speak back. It allows you to slow down long enough to hear God's voice in the whisper. There was a man named the prophet Elijah who experienced this. He was so depressed that he wanted to die. And he says to God, God, where are you? I'm the only one who's left. And God's presence doesn't show up in the big fire. Prophet Elijah thinks these miracle signs are where God's going to speak. God's presence doesn't show up in this big earthquake that happens in front of Elijah. But finally, when everything's quiet, there the presence of the Lord was. God would rather you slow down than distract yourself. God would rather hear your weeping, your complaining, your anger, than your distracted disinterest. When you're in the middle of it, remember... It takes time to define what's a blessing and what's a curse. So take the time and don't put it off. Weep now and you're going to find the peace and the joy that you've been looking for. Bring your tears to God and he'll wipe them away in due course. Lastly, Jesus talks about the blessing and curse as it relates to reputation. In verses 22, 23, and 26, he says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Nobody wants to be the bad guy. Nobody enjoys being the villain or being misunderstood, but I think you and I have to accept that we will always be the villain in someone's story, especially those who are hostile toward our faith. I shared a little bit about my journey 
coming to faith a couple of minutes ago, but I didn't mention that my family at the time were not Christians. And with the exception of my mother, most of them didn't really like me being a Christian. If you're a Christian, you know that those early days are filled with so many emotions that practically all you can talk about is Jesus. And that was not welcomed in my home. It was an interesting experience to suddenly feel like an outsider in your own family. My early days were filled with sudden shifts in how people viewed me. I remember asking one relative one day to stop using the Lord's name in vain, and they responded very harshly and wanted nothing to do with that. I no longer went out partying every weekend with my friends, and I would get calls at 2 or 3 a.m. Do you remember those like phones that read the messages out loud as they were being left? You know, the like corded phones? Yeah, they'd be like, well, praise the Lord. We're calling for Dylan tonight, and uh, we're just wondering where he is. Uh, hallelujah. You know, they would just mock me a little bit. It's kind of funny, I got to admit. One time I remember trying to talk to my brother about his problems, and he exploded. He said, I don't want to talk with you, Dylan. All you talk about is Jesus. And the psalm came to my mind, Psalm 69, where it says, zeal for your house has consumed me, therefore I am a stranger to my mother's sons. Now, I was young and delicate, brash, and probably deserved a little bit of that. But I'd rather be someone like that, rather than have the apathetic and lazy spirit that so often masquerades as spiritual maturity. It is not more spiritually mature to wait 10 years to talk to people about Jesus. It's dangerous and signifies a loss of zeal and love. It's not more spiritually mature to wait three years to form a relationship before you talk about your faith. That is a lie, and it's a convenient one that some of you have believed. To one degree or another, all of us will be ostracized, cast out, hated, or mocked because we're believers. And we should view ourselves as blessed because of that. However people may wrongly characterize us, it is an honor to experience shame for Christ's name. As the Eastern philosopher Confucius once said in his analytics, to be wealthy and honored in an unjust society is a disgrace. If the culture we live in uncritically would praise you and honor you, you have to ask yourselves, are you any different from them? And this has real-world implications. Notice Jesus uses to describe, the words he uses to describe what's going to happen to us, exclusion, revulsion, spurning, and then he tells you to rejoice. Why? It's hinted at earlier in what he says. He says, great your treasure will be in heaven. You may be despised in the world's eyes, but you will be treasured in God's. The world may very well exclude us, revile us, spurn us because of our faith. And that, may day, that day may come in our country as it has elsewhere in the world for a very long time where we lose freedoms and jobs and influence and opportunity. And the list goes on and on and on. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 11, verse 26. Moses considered the reproaches of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And that is a hard blessing to receive, but it's the ultimate one. Jesus compares our reputation to true or false prophets. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, in short, 
false prophets told people only what they wanted to hear. They would constantly preach peace and security when the message that God wanted to communicate was turn and repent and then I will be merciful to you. They wanted people's approval so they'd say what sounded good. Does that sound familiar to you? I see a growing trend among Christians in our day to only find points of agreement with the broader culture that we live in. We can respect everyone without agreeing with everything. That's what we talked about in Youth Connect last month. It's admirable to find points of agreement. We shouldn't be aiming to disagree with people for the sake of being pure and holy. That's not godly either. But there is a unique danger that I see in saying only the things that are going to be received well by people. And I think the reason that many of us do that is because we're afraid. We do not want to be thought of poorly. We want to be free of any potential conflict. And listen, there are many needless conflicts that Christians engage in, by the way. Some of you need to be more discerning, especially those of you fixed in your thinking. You're not picking your battles. You're picking every battle. You're not choosing a hill to die on. You're dying on every hill. And God is not honored by contentious, argumentative, and unkind Christians who have forgotten how to be gentle. Okay, the scriptures say in 2 Timothy, correct your opponents with gentleness. But others among us need to learn that people do need to hear the truth. When you're aimed at being so loving that you exclude truth, perhaps subconsciously you view yourselves as more loving than God. Sometimes he's willing to be patient with an issue. Other times he wants to press the issue. And it takes wisdom and discernment to determine which is appropriate. However, your wisdom will be clouded if fear is a factor. If you're weighing what the world thinks, what your family thinks, what your friends think of you, you may speak differently and you will miss the mark. You'll either overcompensate to give too much ground or you'll be needlessly combative about things that do not matter. We're not aiming to please people. We're aiming to please God. And that changes the way that we engage with people. It eliminates their power over us. And it's better for them that they're no longer the thing that satisfies us. That's why this is called a blessing. Because even if they hate us, it's better for us and better for them that we're no longer aiming to satisfy them. We're aiming to satisfy God. And that means we can be truthful and loving without bounds. Because they are no longer the source at which we pull from, the the goal at which we aim. And that way of operating is going to cost you something. Because you'll never please everyone. And if you are pleasing everyone, If you are honored by all, you should take some self-inventory and ask, am I more concerned with people's perception of me than God's estimation of me? Am I more concerned with what people think of me than how God would evaluate me? When you have your reputation harmed, as Pastor Paul often says, your reputation does not belong to you, it belongs to the Lord. We would rather be honored in God's sight than praised by man for any issue under the sun. 
And when we find ourselves on the top of the world, we would do well to ask ourselves and take some time to decide what is a blessing and what is a curse. I'm going to call the worship team back at this time. And as they come, I want to ask you one more question. What does this mean for your life? It can be discouraging to look at all these blessings and curses and say, well, I think I'd rather be cursed. <laughs> it sounds good to be full, to rich, be hungry. You know, I, don't, I don't want any of that. What does this mean for you and I today? It means that we have a picture of what the truly blessed life is. Jesus not only tells us the road to walk on, he's the one who paved it. 2 Corinthians said he made himself poor to make us rich, not in possessions, but in spirit. Isaiah 53 says he was the man of sorrows so that we might rejoice because we've been turned away from God's wrath to his grace through the blood of his son. He was shunned, mocked, beaten, rejected by society so that you and I could be embraced by God. He not only tells us, he not only tells us how to live, but his spirit is the one within us helping us to live now. You see, he no longer just commands you, he empowers you. He says, blessed are the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the outcast, because those are the ways that you grow closer to God. By giving, by sacrificing, by mourning, by standing against evil, you get a taste of the suffering that Jesus endured, and you're joined more closely with the Father through the things that you would rather avoid, because they're the tool that God uses to shape you into a blessed person, instead of just being the kind of person who says, bless me. So don't resist that hardship. Embrace it. Listen to this very closely. If you get nothing else out of today, I hope you get this line. Don't hoard your money. Give it. Don't preserve your resource. Sacrifice it. Don't avoid your sorrow. Embrace it. And don't preserve your reputation. Risk it. And in those ways, you'll discover that God becomes more real to you than you ever imagined. In those ways, for better or worse, richer or poorer, you will be blessed. You know, my dad, uh, when I hear the song to, to this day, I still cry. There's a song that uh, Elton John sang uh, called Blessed. And when I was a child, my dad would sing it over me. Because you will be blessed. You'll have the best. I promise you that. God's like that. I hope you never interpret your life as God's curse on you. I hope that you see that in the lowest lows, as the psalmist writes, as David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will never be afraid of evil because I know that you are with me. Whether your rod, which means his discipline, or your staff, which means his comfort, I know that those things lead me on the path. And I know that you go ahead of me. And even in the presence of my enemy, even in the presence of somebody who hates me, I know that you're there with me. And I know that goodness and mercy 
will follow me all the days of my life. Good, how does David write about goodness and mercy in a desert forsaken, cast out and forgotten? How does a man like that think goodness and mercy is following him? It's because he knows how to look at the situations of his life and say, these are not God's curse. These are God's blessing because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He shapes the daughters and the sons that he calls legitimate. If you are without discipline, the scriptures say, you are an illegitimate child. You are not part of the family of God. But if you experience that hardship and you embrace it arms wide open like Jesus did the cross, then you will discover that the discipline of the Lord is flipped on its head to your good, that the evil you experience is exploited by God for your good. As Joseph said, they might have meant it for evil, but God means it for good. It means a blessed person can look at the worst and make the best. That is what it means to be blessed. I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to read one last prayer over you as we worship. This is a prayer of David. I can't tell you how to do all of of these things. Only you can determine that for yourself. But I hope that these principles guide you. And I hope that this psalm helps you. He says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And God, I pray in this moment that there would be no deceit in ours, that we would be honest about where we are and that we would be blessed by you. I pray that you would bless us, keep us, make your face shine on us, give us peace. Thank you again for being with us today. To listen to all of our messages, follow us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify, and go to lowellag.org or ne-cc.org to keep up with all of our news, updates, and events. Thank you, and God bless.